0: Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in the Gospel according to Matthew this morning, chapter 4. So you can turn there. We'll have the words up on the screen behind me. Matthew, chapter 4. While you're turning there, if I haven't met you, my name's Chase Jacobs. I'm the executive pastor here at Desert Springs. And again, I want to welcome you. Thank you for being with us. You're jumping in as we study this amazing book, The First Gospel Account in Our New Testament's Uh, The gospel according to Matthew. So this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. So let me read these verses to us. Again, this is Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea and the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying... Repents for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, I do pray that you would use this word to shine light in darkness this morning. If there's anyone here who uh, walks in darkness, who has not yet repented of their sins for the first time and entered into your kingdom, God, shine, shine in their hearts right now. And Lord, for all of us, would you please fix our eyes on the hope that we have in Christ, that that light that is already in breaking and will one day completely swallow up all of the darkness. Lord, please fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the light of the world. In his name we pray. Amen. So we're three weeks into 2022 now, so uh, that probably means we're just days away from a whole bunch of people declaring that they're going to run for president in 2024. And then that's all we're going to hear about for the next three years. I really hope not. I hope they give us a little bit more time than that. But this text was causing me to think about that process of someone declaring that they are going to run for president. It's really very interesting. One observer said that This is the most controlled moment in a presidential candidate's whole campaign. This is where they have the most control over what they're doing. They have control over the message, and they use the opportunity as a kind of introduction or an elevator speech to what their whole platform is going to be about. The presidential candidate has complete control over the timing of when they make their announcement. And most interestingly, they have the most control over the location of the place where they choose to make this big announcement. And often in the modern era, it's been common for a candidate to choose somewhere very significant, even symbolic, to make this first declaration of their candidacy. So for example, President Biden, he made his announcement that he was going to run for president in the city of Philadelphia, which is the birthplace of our nation's constitution. Former President Trump began his campaign in New York City, In Trump Tower, as we remember, coming down the golden escalator. Backing up one more, Barack Obama, he made his announcement from the old Capitol building in Springfield, Illinois, in the very place where Abraham Lincoln gave his house-divided speech. So you can see in all of these examples what the candidates were trying to do there. They were trying to use that place as, as meaningful, as symbolic, as saying something about what their campaign might promise or, or even how they viewed themselves. Well, this text this morning, this is Jesus' launch of his public ministry. This is where he first opens his mouth and starts his ministry on earth, and in an even more profound way than all of those examples of earthly leaders that I just gave you, Jesus uses the timing and the location of the beginning of his ministry very, very strategically and very symbolically. It tells us so much about our King, about our Messiah, and Matthew is really going to bring this out as we study it this morning. And just so I can be extra clear, I hope that this goes without saying, but Let me just say that in saying that Jesus is is declaring to us starting his ministry in this text this morning, I'm not trying to say that Jesus is asking for your vote. (laughs) Because what is a vote? A vote is a choice that we make to give someone authority, or at least to hope to give someone authority. But Jesus already has all the authority in heaven and on earth. Amen? Amen? He is the king. He is the king over all earthly rulers and so what Jesus is doing here is he's not asking for your vote but he is declaring his authority he is telling you I am the king and you can either be right with the king or you can be on the other side of the king that's your choice but he's got all of the authority in heaven and on earth and he is inviting you into his kingdom and in fact he's saying that wherever he is there his kingdom is with him and as we'll see that's very good news so we've got three points this morning. And as we go through, we could say that these three points just answer three questions. When, that's our first point, where and what. Okay, so this first point, when, verse 12, is a prophet arrested. So if you're, if you're taking notes in the little handout, it's a prophet arrested, verse 12. Look at verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. John here is... Of course, John the Baptist, whom we learned all about in chapter 3, if you've been with us. John the Baptist was a prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. He was the one whom Luke says came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So that means John was not only prophesied about in places like Isaiah or Malachi, but John was himself a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. But, but what was John's prophetic ministry? What role did John play? Well, as he says, he came in order to fulfill what Isaiah said. He was one that only came to prepare the way of the Lord. His ministry was preparatory. And how did he prepare a way? Well, it was by preaching a message of repentance. So if you've got your Bible open and you look at chapter 3, verse 1, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you look at verse 5 of chapter 3, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So all Jerusalem, all Judea, all of the region, John's ministry was hugely popular. I don't know that we always appreciate this, but this was something of a revival happening in the region. You can think of the, the ministry of George Whitfield and the Great Awakening, or even Billy Graham and all of the crowds that he would get to come to his crusades, at the, especially in, in its heyday of, of his crusades, okay, that John was a big, big deal. And yet for all of John's success, for all of his popularity as a preacher, it wasn't about John. John was about Jesus. We saw in chapter 3, John didn't even consider himself worthy to carry Jesus' sandals. If you were to turn to the gospel according to John, which is a different John, there were a lot of Johns, John the Apostle says that John the Baptist says this about Jesus. He sees Jesus coming and John says to his disciples, behold, this is is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John says in John chapter three of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. That's what John's purpose was. That was what John's whole life was about. It wasn't about promoting himself. It was about promoting Jesus. John's prophetic ministry was temporary. And he knew that. He was only trying to level the ground and the hearts of the people there so that Jesus might come in. And when Jesus does show up, John says, behold, there he is. And then John's work was done. John's ministry was was finished. So here in Matthew 4, verse 12, we see the end of John's ministry. It says that he is arrested. And now we're going we're gonna to keep on reading the book of Matthew for several months throughout this year. And so when we get to Matthew chapter 14, we're actually going to see the circumstances of John being arrested. And even John's death, he's beheaded by a king named Herod Antipas. This is the, the son of Herod the Great who tried to kill baby Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. So we're going to learn all about John's arrest. We're going to learn all about his beheading when we get to Matthew chapter 14. Just know the only reason that that John got arrested and killed was because of this message. The kingdom's at hand. Repent. But here in chapter 12, John is arrested. And what I want us to see right now is in, in verse 12 of chapter 4, that it says, When John is arrested. When Jesus heard that John was arrested, that's when Jesus moved from Nazareth to Galilee. This news that John had been arrested is what triggered Jesus' withdrawal to Capernaum. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus was afraid of anything bad happening to him. We know the whole reason that Jesus came was to die on the cross. He knows that where, this is where this is headed, but Jesus knows that this is the next step in the divinely appointed plan of redemption. John's arrest triggers the close of the preparatory ministry and it signals the beginning of the real deal. The curtain has closed on the opening act and the main event is about to start and that's why Jesus moves to Capernaum. So that's the when and now for our second point we consider the where because Matthew is going to say that the place that Jesus chooses to start his ministry is significant. So verse, our, our second point is a prophecy fulfilled. This is verses 13 to 16. So verse 13, it says, Leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And I know all of you guys have come in here uh, fully versed in your ancient Near Eastern history and geography. So this is going to be a lot of repeat for most of you. But for those of you who want to know, okay, this place that he's talking about, Capernaum, Zebulun, Naphtali, these are all uh, part of a region that's in the northern, very northern part of the Promised Land, ancient Israel. Okay, so this is a big region that that was in between the Sea of Galilee on the east, the Mediterranean Sea on the west. The whole place was called Galilee or as Matthew calls it in verse 15, Galilee of the Gentiles. So why is it called Galilee of the Gentiles? Well, if you remember way, way back in the book of Joshua, when they are dividing up the promised land to conquer it, And all of the different, the 12 tribes of Israel are a lot of different regions to go conquer and then live in this very northern region of the promised land was allotted to these two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. So that was where they were going to live. But because this was the very northern extreme of the promised land, they butted right up against all of these other nations. So Syria was up there, there were Phoenicians, and so they were interacting with these other nations. Even the boundaries were, you know, a little blurry at times. And worse than that, if you were to read the book of Judges, it would say that when Zebulun and Naphtali went in to conquer these territories that God had given to them, well, they didn't quite conquer it, did they? They did an okay job, but, but they left a lot of those people still living there, these idolatrous, wicked, unbelieving people that stood under God's judgment, which was the whole reason that God was giving that land to them in the first place. Well, they didn't conquer and remove all of those people. So the book of Judges chapter 1 says that the people of Zebulun and Naphtali lived among the Canaanites the inhabitants of the land. So they lived among these idol worshipers in their land, and and we know how that goes, don't we? You can't live long among idol worshipers without worshiping those idols yourself. And so that's what starts to happen in these these northern tribes. They start to worship these false gods, these gods that were no gods, and, and because of their idolatry, if you read through the Old Testament, because of their idolatry, judgment from God comes upon them. So these northern tribes of the nation of Israel were conquered by another nation called the Assyrians. This is all about 600 years before. Matthew takes place. But they were, they were conquered by the Assyrians. And, and what happened when the Assyrians came in and conquered these northern tribes is they took all of the Israelites that lived there and they moved them. They, they took them out of the promised land and took them somewhere else. And then they actually brought in all of these Gentiles from somewhere else and settled them in Israel, in the promised land. So now it's really Galilee of the Gentiles. Now it's been handed over to Gentiles. And there's a lot more that's happening, but I can already see that your eyes are glazed over. Just know Israel gets conquered a lot more By a lot more Gentiles. And by the time Matthew is written, this land, though there's some Jews settled there in some places, this land is very much filled with Gentile influences. So that what Matthew says here is true. This is Galilee of the Gentiles. And by the time Jesus begins his ministry, this whole region, this northern part of Judea and Palestine, this place that the Romans had conquered, this whole part, though there were some Jews, it was just really looked on as like a backwater. All of the really good, faithful, religious Jews, they lived in Jerusalem or in the surrounding regions. But all of those people that lived up there in Galilee, well, they were a bunch of hicks. They were not good people. They were not religious people. They didn't really know what they were doing because they hung out with Gentiles all the time. Okay, this is, this is just not a place even worth considering. This is Galilee. So back to our text. Matthew says that Jesus, when he learns that John was arrested, moves from Nazareth, which was where, uh, you remember, Joseph and his, uh, his family settled there after Jesus came up out of Egypt. Okay, this is where he lived and spent most of his time growing up. Well, he moves from Nazareth, and he goes to this city called Capernaum. Capernaum is a bigger city. It's on the very north part of the Sea of Galilee. It's a fishing village. It's a fishing hub. But what Matthew is trying to call out to us is none of this was by accident. All of this was perfectly controlled by Jesus to make a very important point. That's what Matthew says in verse 14. Jesus lived in Capernaum so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That is the seventh direct quotation of the Old Testament in Matthew. Seven. Seven fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy leading up to Jesus beginning his ministry. How cool is that? Matthew is saying that Jesus, in living in Capernaum, fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 9. And these are verses 1 and 2 that he cites here. And I think it was Pastor Randy that said a couple of weeks ago that whenever Matthew cites these Old Testament prophets, he is assuming that the reader knows the context. He's assuming that the reader knows everything that came before and after those verses. And and with this, Isaiah 9 especially, you might actually know the context. You are probably familiar with these verses because we read them every Christmas. Isaiah chapter 9, a little later, is where we get to the part about a child being born to us. About a son being given. Isaiah says, the government will be on this child's shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom. It's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, but that's not what Matthew quotes here. Matthew backs it up. To verse 1. So it would just help us to understand what Matthew is really trying to say here if we just saw everything that Isaiah was saying in chapter 9. So you don't need to turn to Isaiah 9, we're gonna have these up on the screen. But let me read Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 5, so we can really understand how amazing this is. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And then he goes on to say, for to us a child is born. So for Isaiah, all of this is clearly Messianic. This is clearly looking forward to a king that would be born in the line of David, a king who would bring relief to God's people, a king who would conquer, a king who would bring peace and rejoicing and joy, a king who would, in fact, rule over the nations on the throne of David forever. How does a king rule forever? Well, clearly, Isaiah is already seeing that, that though this is a human king, this isn't only a human king. This is a divine king and a divine kingdom. In fact, this is the kingdom of God. Heaven. But in Isaiah chapter 9, who does Isaiah say this blessing of the Messianic kingdom? Who does it come to first? Galilee. It comes to Galilee. It comes to Zebulun and Naphtali. And that is the significance of Matthew chapter 4. That's what Jesus is trying to say when he chooses to start his ministry in Capernaum. Do you see it? It's me. I'm the one. I'm the guy that Isaiah was talking about. I'm the king. I'm the wonderful counselor. I'm the mighty God. I'm the everlasting father, which is a kingly title. I'm the prince of peace. Do you get it? Do you get it? It's me. I'm the Messiah. But not only that. More than that. Going all the way back to Isaiah. What God is saying to us about the Messiah, what Jesus is announcing about himself is that he is a Messiah who comes first to people who dwell in darkness. That's our king. That's the kind of king we have. He comes to the people that that dwell in darkness. He comes to the people that even walk in darkness, or as Matthew translates translates it, they, they dwell in the shadow of death. That's who our king comes to, to the people dwelling in deep darkness. Historically, whenever Israel was invaded by other countries, by these other empires, those empires always came down from the north. Actually, when Isaiah refers to the way of the sea, that's, that's a highway. That's the name of a road that runs through Galilee. And so when these invading armies would come down, they would walk on that highway, which means that Galilee, Zebulun, Naphtali, they were always on the front line every time Israel got conquered. That's why Isaiah talks about the boot of the tramping warrior and the battle tumult, about garments rolled in blood. That's who these people are. That's who they've been throughout their history. They are a people who have been oppressed by circumstances outside of their control, constantly beat down again and again. These are a people who have suffered and who live in fear of suffering. These are people who are acquainted with death. And I know some of you can relate. Some of you feel that way. Even right now, and I know all of us have felt this kind of darkness at times. Suffering, anguish, gloom, the shadow of death. That's who these people are. And their darkness is more than that. It's more than just suffering. It's more than just fear. But it's a spiritual darkness. Even a a spiritual ignorance. This is a land of Gentiles. These are people that are not a part of the tribes of Israel. These are people who don't know about God. These are people who have not heard about God. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 describes Gentiles like this, as those who are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It's these people who don't know God. They have no hope. They are in spiritual darkness. They don't even know what they ought to be doing. They are contemptible. They are unclean. They are sinful. They are depressed. They are fearful. They are hurting. And they are the very first people Messiah comes to. This is where he launches his ministry. This is what he is trying to say about himself. He didn't he didn't launch his ministry in Jerusalem. He didn't come down a golden escalator in Rome. He went to Galilee. He went to people in darkness. Do you see what kind of king we have? Do you see? These are the people that Jesus once forever identified with his message. These are his people. This is who he came for and he came as light. Matthew 14 or 4:16 4, again, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So what's the light? That's our last point. Let's answer that question. What? What is the light? Well, the light is a man, it's Jesus himself, but it's also his message. It's the message that the man himself embodies all the way to the cross. So point three is a preacher's message. That's verse 17, a preacher's message. So if you've been taking notes in your outline, we had point one, a prophet arrested. Point two, a prophecy fulfilled, and now a preacher's message. And you say, Chase, you're not very good at sermon outlines. Why not a prophet's message? That would have fit so much more neatly. And it would have been right. Jesus does refer to himself as a prophet. He is a prophet. In fact, Jesus is not only a prophet, he's also our great high priest. And as I've already said, he's our king, this, this threefold office. Which, if I can, can I just make an aside? Caleb Batchelor talked about this threefold office of Christ in our DSI class on Wednesday night. And if you haven't been checking out our DSI classes or, or coming to our DSI classes you are missing out on some of the best teaching I've ever heard. I'm not kidding. I have learned so much by, by listening to these classes. So the Wednesday nights, 6.30, you can come here in person. It's really sweet in person because we get time to pray together, but you can also watch them online. But this is an amazing resource that we're putting out for you guys. So please take advantage of it because it's so good. It would be so good for you, the systematic theology class that we're doing on Wednesdays. But we talked about this on Wednesday, that Jesus does fulfill the Old Testament offices of prophet, priest and kings, So we could say, yes, point three, a prophet's message. But just look at me at verse 17. Look at what it says. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And notice first, that's verbatim John the Baptist's message, isn't it? Isn't it? It's the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John just prepared that message for Jesus to take up when his ministry started. But see, it says that Jesus began to preach, to stand up and and do what I'm doing, to talk to a big crowd and to announce this message. It reminds me of Mark chapter one, verse 38. There, Jesus says to his disciples, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. That's why I came down from heaven to preach. It's a purpose statement. Now, Jesus had several purpose statements. He came for several reasons. Okay. He says that he came to seek and save the lost. He says he came to to give himself as a ransom for many on the cross. And, And those things are true too. And we're quick to remember those reasons that Jesus came. But let's not forget that he also came to preach. To teach us with with words. The Christian faith is one of words and ideas and thinking and meditating. Jesus didn't just come down from heaven and go right to the cross. Jesus came down. He lived a perfect life. He grew up. He began his public ministry. And he preached for three years before he died on the cross. Now, if you read every gospel account, you get the sense every one of them is is driving to the cross, and more than that, to the resurrection, okay, that they're all about the cross. They end with, with a cross, but they all include this teaching ministry in advance. Matthew itself, if we just limit ourselves to the book of Matthew, Matthew includes five long sermons on the way to the cross before we get to the cross at the end. So Matthew knew, Jesus knew. That before you got the cross, you needed these five sermons to understand what was really happening there and to understand what it means for you in this life. So what am I saying? All I'm saying is don't separate out the words from the works of Jesus. Do you get that? They come together. Don't just be people that think about the works of Jesus because then you're not really thinking about them rightly because Jesus gave us all these words. And at the same time, don't be the kind of people that separate out the words from the works of Jesus. It's not just about the moral teaching of Jesus. It's all about the cross. It's all about the atonement, but it comes together. So Jesus came preaching. In verse 17, he began to preach. And In verse 17, we get the introduction to his message. This is the elevator speech of his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everything else that he says and does, it really just is flowing out of this simple statement here. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At hand. Pastor Randy, a couple weeks ago, explained this idea of repentance. And so we don't need to rehash all of that now. But if you remember, he said the word repent in the original language. It means to change your mind. To change your mind. To change your mind about God and his holiness and his goodness. To change your mind about yourself and your sin before God. But it's not just to to change your mind and maybe the way that we think about it, but it's to change your mind in a way that that your actions follow suit. To change your mind in a way that that your life actually changes. Think of what John the Baptist says in chapter 3, verse 8 to the Pharisees bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's like if you're on the highway and you're driving down and you realize you're going in the wrong direction. Well, it's not just enough to kind of give mental assent to the fact that you're going the wrong way. What do you have to do? You have to exit. First chance that you get. And that's when you notice all the like police crossovers, right, that you can't use for official use only. Jesus says, repent. Find an exit. Turn around. And in that command, which it is, it's a command, repent. There's so much good news just right there because Jesus wouldn't command you to do something that you couldn't do. You can exit. You can use the police crossover. Jesus in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, he's made a way for you to repent and he empowers you to do that. There is nothing keeping you. From acknowledging, realizing, I'm going the wrong way. Which is to say, you're going away from God's commands. You're not going the way that God would have you go as he has revealed his will for you in his word. You're going the wrong way. But he says, it's just as easy as getting off and turning around. You can repent. You must repent. But that's not the total of Jesus' message. Jesus gives us a reason for repenting. A basis for for repenting, Why does he say repent? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Another way you could translate that, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Or the kingdom of heaven has arrived. That's what that means. The kingdom of heaven is here. And you say, it is? Look around. This is not what I expected the kingdom of heaven to look like. I thought there would be a bit more angels, a lot less suffering. What what does Jesus mean when he says that the kingdom of heaven is here? Well, we know what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that the kingdom of heaven wasn't here before. God has always been reigning. He will always be reigning. He is the king over the whole universe. And so anybody in this world that is not acknowledging that God is their king, not living and subject to God, well, they're just living in rebellion because this is God's world. This is his world that he is the king over. Jesus is also not saying that when the kingdom has arrived, when the kingdom has drawn near, he's not saying that it's arrived in full. That there is more kingdom yet to become. There is actually the completeness, the fullness of the kingdom. When God himself asserts that reign finally, completely, perfectly over this world. Where there will be no more rebels because God will cast all of the rebels out. And then everything is just going to be perfect. And there will be angels. That kingdom is yet to come. It's in the future. It's in the very end. That's what we look forward to. This is why Jesus can say just a few chapters later that we should pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he says the kingdom has come, and yet we want more of it to come. So we're in this in-between. And that's what Jesus is saying here in verse 17, that the kingdom has come. It hasn't come in full, but it's here, and it's here in him. That Jesus is the king of that future kingdom, and he has brought that kingdom into time, into space, in himself, that the kingdom has arrived in Christ. So wherever Jesus is, there is heaven. And this helps us understand all of the things that Jesus is going to do while he's preaching this message of the kingdom. He goes around and he is going to heal sick people and he's going to cast out demons and he's going to feed the hungry. He's going to raise the dead. Why does he do that? Because that's what heaven is going to be like. So wherever Jesus is, heaven stuff happens. Because you know what? In heaven, there won't be demons. And in heaven, there won't be sickness. In heaven, there won't be hunger. In heaven, there won't be death. In heaven, there won't even be crying. In heaven, there won't even be darkness. This is Revelation chapter 21. It says, the the city, the new Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. The nations aren't walking in darkness in the new heavens and the new earth. They're walking in the lights of the new Jerusalem. And John says there will be no night there. So do you see at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry what he's doing? Do you see it now? That future glory that future light that shines perpetually that no darkness can even enter into, that light by which the nations will walk, Jesus brings that light into Galilee of the Gentiles. And it's begun. It has started right here, right now. This this future light embodied in Jesus and announced in his message. John chapter 8 verse 12 Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or Isaiah 9, verse 3 again. I, or, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Jesus coming To people in darkness, shining light, it's a reason for joy. It's a reason for rejoicing. We say this word gospel, it means good news. And I wonder if we forget that sometimes. I mean, we know to say that, right? We know to say gospel means good news. We're going out to preach good news. But is it actually good to you? Is it actually good news to you? Because this is why Jesus tells us to turn around. You're going the wrong way, and the way you're going is not good for you. The way you're going, it only gets darker that way. The stuff you're pursuing, the things that you're hoping in, the the sins that you're addicted to, it's not working, is it? You're going the wrong way from bad to worse. It's not going to do it for you. But turn around. I've got good news. It's better in the kingdom. It's better this way. Come on, turn around. You're missing out on the light of life. Come on, turn around. I don't think I'm just talking to non-believers here, church. And if you're here and you're not a believer, I'm so glad you're here. I can't imagine how weird this is for you. But I hope you hear what I'm saying. This is an invitation for you. Do you feel the darkness? Do you feel the weight of sin, both in yourself and in this world? I announce to you a message of good news Jesus is light. You can have light. You can have light in your darkness. All you have to do is acknowledge you're going the wrong way, realize it, turn around, come on in, come on into the kingdom. This is an invitation to you. Believe in Jesus and you will have eternal hope. But church, repentance isn't a one-time thing. Let me remind you again of words of Martin Luther. The very first of the 95 theses, a sentence that changed the whole world. When our Lord and master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So this message of Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. This is for you, brothers and sisters. This is for you. Yes, our minds have already been changed in the most total and complete way and they're being renewed day after day that our minds are are understanding about the kingdom, about God, about ourselves. It's increasing every day. We have been transferred already, as Paul says, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved son that has happened for us and nothing can take that away. But I still make wrong turns as a Christian. I still get off track. We still wander a little bit, a little ways away from obedience to God's commands. Maybe it's not a full 180 degrees in the wrong direction, but, but we are all off. We can all find ourselves walking in darkness and in need of repentance. And if it's not sin that comes from within ourselves, that we have wandered off into, we, all of us, will from time to time find ourselves in the shadow of death. As we live in a fallen world, it it will just cast darkness on us, circumstances outside of our control that will cause us to suffer and will beat us down. We're still in darkness. We know gloom and anguish, sin and fear. Brothers and sisters, we can still quite often be contemptible Sinful, weak, and let me remind you, we are exactly the people that the Messiah came for. This is our Christ. This is our King. He's for us. He's for you, and in your sin, and in your sadness, and in your darkness, and in your fear, and all of it, Jesus still comes to you, and he announces good news. All the more, remember what the good news is, and you will have light in Your darkness. So we have to remember still how to apply this good news to all of the darkness in our life every day because Jesus willed that repentance be the whole life of a believer. So if you're sad right now, talking to Christians, Christians get sad. Christians can struggle with depression. Christians you can go through trials and difficulties. You can have that feeling of, why won't this let up? Is this ever going away? You feel that sadness. I have good news for you. Remember what Isaiah says about Jesus in Isaiah 53 that Jesus himself was a man of sorrows, he was acquainted with grief, he wept. He knows what it is to be sad. He came to bear our sadness, to experience our sadness. And he promised us, church, it's going to get better. He's going to wipe your tears away. He will. But maybe not in this life. Maybe not in this life, but, but we're not in it for this life. He is the light of eternal life. And so I hope it gets better for you, and God can certainly answer that prayer. But, but the hope of the gospel, the light that shines in your sadness right now is that this will end. It will go away. Keep pressing on, brothers and sisters. Don't give in to despair, but fix your mind more and more on that day when there is no night. And that will give you joy now that will help you persevere, that will help you endure until that kingdom comes because it has already arrived in Jesus. And if you're stuck in sin right now, if you're just stuck in sin and you feel your your weakness and, and your guilt and your shame, your grief over your sin, remember what we read Already this morning, what Mike read to us from Isaiah 42, how gentle our Savior is. You're feeling weak. Well, he didn't come to break a bruised reed. It says a candle that's there flickering, about to go out. Jesus isn't going to quench it. He's kind. He's loving. He's gentle. And because of that, he took all of your sins onto himself. All of your guilt, all of your shame, Everything that you feel so bad about. Jesus says, give it to me. He took it all from you and he bore it on the cross. All of that guilt and all that shame, all of the punishment that you feel like you deserved, Christ suffered it. It was nailed to the cross. You bear it no more. And remember what we talked about last week. All of Christ's perfect righteousness when God looks at him and says, this is my beloved child. Well, that's yours. So, I know we all struggle with sin, but there's no guilt there. Jesus died for your sins, even sins that you haven't committed yet. You don't have to feel guilty. You can repent and walk in light. You are forgiven. And if that is you, if you're struggling with sin, you know that God has forgiven you, but you don't know. You don't know what to do. You don't know the right things to do. Jesus is giving us this. Psalm 119 says, Your word is a light to my feet and a lamp to my path. God has given us this so that we wouldn't be spiritually ignorant anymore. He said, this is the way to go. I'm going to light it up for you. That way that you're walking on, it doesn't lead anywhere that you want to be. But good news, everyone who obeys my commandments, who walks in obedience to me, will be walking closer and closer to the kingdom of light. And more than just giving us his word, he has given us his Holy Spirit, which illuminates, lights up our hearts to help us, to help us walk in the paths of righteousness. Good news, God has given you his spirit. And for those of you this morning who are walking in the shadow of death, you've felt the sting of death in your own life. You walk under the fear of death for yourself or for someone else. That's a darkness. That's gloom. That's anguish. I know. I know only a little bit of what that feels like. I have good news Jesus is risen from the dead think about this there was nowhere in the whole history of the whole world as dark as Jesus' tomb they took him down off of that cross where he died the death that you deserve to die they laid him in the grave they rolled the stone in front of it there was nowhere in history darker than that and three days later in the morning At dawn, the text says, his disciples came back to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away and an angel there shining in glorious light. Jesus is risen. Our King has conquered death. John 1 5 The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is risen from the dead. And all of us who have believed in him will be raised like him in an imperishable body that will never, ever die. Jesus felt the sting of death. He went into the shadow of death that he might shine light into it and crush it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So we don't have to be afraid of death. Jesus is risen from the dead, and we will be with him forever. That's the good news. That's the light that Jesus is beginning to hold out to people in darkness to shine the light of life, this this light that, that points to, that is a foretaste of the full light that we will see in that day. Jesus came to us preaching this message and he sends us out preaching that same message. It struck me as I was studying this week that the very next time that Matthew uses the word light in his gospel, so if you were to read through and look for the next time he uses the word light, it's not about Jesus. It's about us. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Isn't that amazing? That's what Jesus said about himself. I'm the light of the world. And then he says it to you. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a stand so that it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, disciples, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Apostle Paul says something very similar in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says to the church, you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And in Philippians 2, he says, you are children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. And I think holding out the word of life. We're all little John the Baptists. Our ministry is not preparatory, but it is temporary. And we ought to be about the same thing that John was about, saying, I must decrease so that he might increase. We just go out into the world like lights and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what we do. Jesus sends us out. So how the book of Matthew ends. You're going to hear these verses over and over and over again as we study this book. Rightly so, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you and remember. Behold, I'm with you. I'm with you in your darkness. I'm with you all the way until the end of the age, and in that age there is no night. So he sends us out, and he sends us out with the very same message. Brothers and sisters, go into the world as light to people dwelling in darkness, to people that are sad, To people that are contemptible. To people that feel guilty. To people that are ashamed. To people that are afraid. Go to them and say, turn around and you'll see the kingdom. Let me tell you about the kingdom. Let me tell you about my king. Let's pray. Yes, God, I do thank you for being light in our darkness. And, and God, I pray that you would fix our eyes and our hearts and our minds more and more on the light that will be in that day and that, in that we would have light in this life. We thank you, Jesus, for, for bringing your kingdom in part, for bringing heaven in part. And God, I pray that you would cause us to be bright lights. Cause Desert Springs Church to be a bright light. Even as we go out trying to just share the gospel with two people this year, For 2 and 22, God, help us to be light to people that need a little heaven. God, help us to, to shine your light in darkness. And please help us to walk in your light until that day that it comes completely.